What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA Meeting. Let's talk with Elisa Podcast, where we talk all things MMA, and I hope you guys are having an amazing day. And we have a lot to talk about here, man. I want to get out of the way the whole Jake Paul situation. I try not to talk about him. I try to avoid this and give him the attention that he wants, but as much as I tried, everybody else is talking about him. So he's fully absorbed in the sport. He's completely relevant, even though he doesn't compete here. He's played it smart and got everybody over here against him. Whether it be the fans, the fighters talk about him, they want to compete with him in boxing, guys like Conor McGregor mentioning him, Dana White's mentioning him, and the event, MMA content creators, especially the MMA news channels on YouTube, are constantly making videos about the guy, and you had 15,000 people during one of the biggest events of the year so far chanting his name, whether it be against him or for him, it doesn't matter, Jake Paul feeds on the attention. He did not hear F.U. Jake Paul. He just heard money. That's all he heard. As long as you're giving the guy attention, he is winning at the end of the day. And a lot of people just don't see that about the guy. Jake Paul's a smart guy who's making so much money gathering the attention from the sport of MMA and drawing them into the world of boxing for everybody to witness. He's not going to fight a boxer. He already knows that. So whenever you see fans say, oh, you know, Jake Paul, if you're a man or if you think you're a real fighter, a real boxer, why don't you fight a real boxer? He's not going to do that. He doesn't believe he's one of the best boxers in the world. That's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to make a quick buck and beat MMA fighters in the boxing ring. It's absolutely genius. I mean, at this point, he understands that MMA fighters have a bigger name than boxers these days. And at the same time, they're not as good in boxing as boxers are. So why would he call out a boxer? He's going to call out the more known MMA fighters, get them out of their element, and attempt to beat them in something he is training in constantly. Why would he call out someone like Canelo when he can attempt to call out someone like Conor McGregor, who's a bigger name and a worse boxer? He's obviously not going to get either of those fights, but this is the kind of mentality, this is the kind of mindset he's coming into this with. He's not a real fighter. He's not looking at this like that. He's looking at this as a businessman to make a bunch of money very quickly. This is how it's most likely going to work out. Jake Paul is going to fight someone like Tyron Woodley who just got released by the UFC. Let's say he fights Tyron Woodley and let's say he beats him. Let's say he beats the older guy who's not much of a boxer. That's going to give him so much more attention and give him that credibility of a quote-unquote real fighter or at least he beat a real combat athlete and it's going to create some legitimacy or validate himself a little bit more in combat sports. That's going to draw bigger names every single time. So he's going to take these easier fights until he gets someone like Conor McGregor to fight him or someone like a Floyd Mayweather or some big name where you can cash out tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars and pull out completely. Once he gets that big fight and he loses, you're never going to see Jake Paul doing this again. There's no reason for him to do it again. He got the biggest bag that he could have gotten. What can beat that for him? He's going to bounce right after that. So of course he's going to call out something like Ben Askren. Of course he's going to call out Dylan Dennis. Of course he's going to attempt to call out Daniel Cormier and Tyron Woodley, older retired fighters or older fighters who are in the last leg of their career who've taken a lot of damage and all that stuff and in Daniel Cormier's case he's probably a bit out of shape do I think he's gonna beat someone like Daniel Cormier no I don't think so do I think he'll beat Tyron Woodley I don't think so necessarily there's a chance he could beat Woodley but I absolutely do not see him being Cormier but this is his path to get that Conor McGregor fight or that huge money fight where he can completely cash out and leave the sport entirely and do something else so the best thing was to just ignore the guy but it might be too late at this point there's been too many people with a lot of power and influence that have been talking about this guy and still are talking about this guy. So I think he's fully relevant in the sport. I think we're going to be hearing about this guy until he loses and that's it. And the thing about Daniel Cormier, I did not like the way he handled this whole situation. I didn't like how he came up to Jake Paul's face. I didn't like how he talked about him for like four days in a row, even though he said he wasn't going to mention him ever again. I didn't like that he actually got baited into 
talking about fighting him. He actually said, I'll fight him in an MMA contest, not in boxing. That can be and was twisted to go against Cormier. And as much as you want to knock Jake Paul for this, he actually played that intelligently. He turned what Cormier said for those like three, four days and used it against him. Cormier said, when I see you, I'm going to smack you. What happened when he came up to Jake Paul? He didn't slap him. Of course, he wasn't going to. Of course, he couldn't because he was working. But you know that Jake Paul's going to use that against him and said, hey, you saw me. You were in my face. You didn't slap me. Are you really about it? That's how he's going to play with that whole thing. And Jake Paul says, oh, you're not going to fight me in boxing? What, you don't think you can beat me in boxing? Now, Jake Paul's fans and casual fans are going to think, you know, Cormier doesn't believe he has a chance against Jake Paul in boxing. That's why he called him out in an MMA fight. Why would you call him out in an MMA fight when Jake Paul's not a real fighter? Like, he should be able to beat him in boxing. This is what's going to go on in the casual fan's mind. I don't think so, obviously. I think Cormier would smash Jake Paul in any contest, in any kind of fight. But we're going to hear more of Jake Paul because of that. This is why we should try to make Jake Paul as irrelevant as possible. At this point, I'm talking about him. Like I said, he's fully absorbed in the sport. He got all the relevancy because of everybody talking about him. So at this point, I think it's too late. And ultimately, people are going to be talking about him, especially with his next fight. Guys like Tyron Woodley want to fight him. Guys like Kamaru Usman, I think he declined recently, but he actually played with the whole thing about fighting Jake Paul. That won't happen. Dana White's not going to let one of, the, one of their champions go out and fight Jake Paul in boxing. He'll probably let someone like Tyron Woodley, of course, who's not under contract with the UFC anymore. Maybe even Diego Sanchez, like any of those guys. Watch when Jake Paul calls out Diego Sanchez now. And he would smash Diego. And he'll say, look, I actually beat a striker of your sport now. There was excuses that Ben Askren wasn't a striker. At least Diego's a decent enough striker. Look, I just knocked him out too. It's just a whole crazy situation. And speaking about that, we'll go right into the Logan Paul and Floyd Mayweather fight because that got announced and it's going to be in June. People ask me all the time, does this fight ruin boxing? I don't think so. Honestly, I think boxing ruined boxing and this is the residue of it. This is what came out of the ashes. Boxing has destroyed itself over a long period of time and it's been slowly suiciding itself for the last several decades because of the dirty business that it is. The promoters that that sport absolutely destroyed it. It's not really the boxers, it's the promoters. They don't put on the fights the fans want to see. So what's going to happen because of that? You're going to get celebrities like YouTubers come into the sport and make their own fights, be their own promoters. And honestly, that can be a good thing. If fighters actually learn from YouTubers and know how to handle themselves as businessmen instead of just a fighter, they are going to do much better for themselves in the future. Once the boxers take over and control their destiny, control their careers, that's when boxing is going to revive itself. And honestly, guys like Jake Paul, Logan Paul, KSI, all these YouTubers have shown all these boxers to take control of their own careers and don't put their careers in the dirty hands of promoters. And honestly, Floyd Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao, there have been other boxers in the past who have done this as well. And that is potentially what can save boxing. Potentially can. That's one good thing that could come out of all this. But the bad thing that could come out of things like Logan Paul versus Floyd Mayweather is you kill off your hardcore fan base. If this becomes a normal thing, if you start to see YouTubers fight legitimate boxers, I mean, we have a guy who has never lost versus a guy who has never won. If you have these kind of things happen all the time, you're going to lose the hardcore fan base. They're not going to care anymore. You're going to have to start to depend on the casuals. The people are only in for these freak show fights. And once you can't supply the freak show fights anymore, then the casual fan base leave too. They're always in and out. They're not loyal. They're not a sturdy foundation. Casual fans can be somewhat difficult to gather, but it can be even harder to gather a hardcore fan base. They are the foundation of the sport. They're like a supply line that the sport can never go under. But without that supply line, without the hardcore fans lifting the sport from crashing to the ground, that is exactly what can happen without them. 
if you just rely on the casual fans, each event or the entire sport in general can crash to the ground. So this has to be a very cautious era of freak show fights with YouTubers and celebrities fighting real boxers or even each other because the fans of boxing are not going to be up for this all the time. They're going to leave to something else. So I'm all in for the fighters making more money, but man, this is a very dangerous situation that's going on right now. And more nuttiness, we're going to go right into Diego Sanchez and Joshua Fabia. That whole thing is just weird, man. So we all know Josh Fabia, the greatest trainer of all time, who chases people in the octagon with a knife to condition their evasiveness. Well, supposedly he's the reason why Diego Sanchez got cut from the UFC. I mean, everybody from the employees to Dana White himself to the fighters, they say the guy's a nut job. And honestly, to me, I don't think he is, but he gives vibes of like a cult leader. And Diego Sanchez seems to be in a state in his career where he's kind of lost at this point. He's lost training partners. He's lost coaches. He's been in this game for such a long time. He's took a lot of damage to the head. The amount of brain damage Diego has suffered has to be tremendous. I mean, it has to be scary to think about. And with all of that, it seems like he's being controlled by this guy. That's at least what the word is behind the scenes. That's what guys like Dana White and the employees are talking about. They're saying things like when they're trying to talk to Diego Sanchez, his trainer is the one that's talking for him and making decisions for him. It's a weird situation that's happening. And the guy makes it always about himself. Whenever there's some kind of disagreement or argument going on, like that video that came out yesterday of him uh, arguing with Paul Felder and the other commentators, he made it about himself. It started with, you know, Diego Sanchez being disrespected on the broadcast. They keep talking against him and even making fun of Diego at times. Only for Fabio to twist it and make it about himself saying things like, all the fans keep talking bad about me, and when they talk bad about me, that goes directly to Diego Sanchez. When that's not even true. When people are talking bad about Fabia, it's only bad on Fabia. That's completely irrelevant to Diego Sanchez. Diego Sanchez is a fighter. The guy's been doing this for such a long time. He is one of the most respected fighters in the sport of MMA. For the things he has done, for how long he's been doing it, and how great he used to be, there is no disrespect to Diego Sanchez. There's only towards the trainer. And honestly, the reason why people are so hard on Joshua Fabia, yes, he could be a bit weird by chasing people with knives, creating death touch moves. Next thing you know, he's going to Hadouken someone. We all fear for Diego Sanchez's health. If he stays with a guy like this, how much is he going to be damaged? Going under these unorthodox training methods at his age. While Diego is learning how to fly, his opponents are sharpening their kicking techniques, their punching techniques, their grappling techniques. And at Diego's age, he has no time to lose if he's going to continue doing this. And that's what we worry about if he does continue to do this. So Fabio thinks we're disrespecting Sanchez by knocking him. When that is not the case, it's actually the opposite. If we didn't care about Diego, we wouldn't even care about Joshua Fabio. That's the reality of this situation. It's very weird for us to watch. And do it also be very weird to watch this whole rumor if it goes down. Nick Diaz versus Hamza Shemaev. That's also a fight that should not be put together. I mean, man, I know Hamza Shemaev is coming back. He wants to fight in August. Nick Diaz wants to come back. He's supposed to talk with Dana White for his future fight. The thing is, though, Nick Diaz is a great fighter. He's always been. But the guy hasn't fought for six years. That is one of the longest layoffs I've ever seen in the sport. Maybe Boss Rutten is the only guy who came back with a longer layoff. Six years is serious. Like, that's something where that guy needs a tune-up fight. He doesn't need to fight a young hungry monster like Hamza Shemaev. Nick Diaz needs to fight guys like Carlos Condit, Robbie Lawler, Dan Hardy. I mean, these are the fights that need to happen for Nick right now. If he blows through those guys, then we go Hamza Shemaev. Then we go to these other bigger names in the division. We don't throw them in there right now. Jorge Masvidal? No, that should not happen. That's even worse. Nick Diaz versus Masvidal is a fight that has a story to it. There's an emotional buildup to it with uh, Jorge defeating Nate. So the big brother is going to avenge his little brother. That's all great on a storyline. But honestly, man, that would be such a one-sided fight. I know the fans would regret 
asking for that kind of fight to happen once they see it. To me, when I honestly think about Nick Diaz versus Jorge Masvidal or Nick Diaz versus Hamza Shemaev, I think of BJ Penn versus Frankie Edgar 3, or respectively, BJ Penn versus Yari Rodriguez. That's what I see. We got to test Nick Diaz right now with guys who are part of his era, right? He's part of the Carlos Condit, Robbie Lawler, Dan Hardy era. That's when he was fighting. Actually, he was a little bit before Dan Hardy, to be honest. The game has evolved so much. You don't need to throw him at guys like Hamza Shemaev, who are way ahead of him in the game right now. If he can get past those guys that are part of his generation, which frankly, in the past, in his prime, he had a very hard time doing, then let's run the big money fights. But if he has competitive fights with those guys... I don't think we should do Mazadal. I don't think we should do Hamza Shemaev. I don't think we should do any of those guys. Nick Diaz versus Conda 2 or Robbie Lawler 2 or even Dan Hardy. Those are pretty big fights, man. Dan Hardy's up for it and he would be coming back off a huge layoff as well. I love Nick Diaz, man. I just don't want to see him get hurt out there the way I saw BJ Penn get destroyed out there. And you guys hear about the whole John Jones management thing? So Jones has left his management like a day later when he tweeted about the $30 million offer. He's without a management right now, and he's leaving the Kawa brothers, which means probably they were making the negotiations without Jones present, and maybe they made the offer of $30 million when Jones did not. That's entirely possible. But then again, he didn't really put out a number, so we don't we don't know what to say about it. But the fact that he left the management probably tells you that they did something probably behind his back that he wasn't really happy about. So it's going to be interesting what manager he goes with. And a lot of people want him to go with Ali Abdelaziz. Whatever you want to say about Ali Abdelaziz, the guy is an amazing manager. It's just evident. He is probably the best manager in MMA. He gets all his fighters the pay that they want. He's very close to Dana White. He has the connections that nobody else has. There's a reason why he has like 50 UFC fighters under him. Honestly, every MMA fighter, especially UFC fighter because of his connections, need to go with Ali Abdelaziz. And if Jones can get with him, perhaps we can see the Jones and Ganu fight happen. Now, Dana White said that it's Derek Lewis versus Ngannou. But if Jones comes back to the table and actually compromises with Ali Abdelaziz present, maybe we can get something going here. Because they put out, Jones, Ngannou, and Derek Lewis all put out a very interesting statement about their next fight. Jones is hinting at that he's going to fight Ngannou. He's saying things like, going to bring the belt back to the United States. He's ready for Ngannou. He's saying things that are strongly hinting at the possibility of him fighting Ngannou. Ngannou is saying things like, I'm going to fight Jones first and then Tyson Fury. I don't know if that means later after Derek Lewis or does that mean now? And then you have Derek Lewis saying that Jones is out of the negotiation. He's not part of this anymore. And it's me versus Francis Ngannou 100%. So what's the fight that's happening now, man? This is actually very exciting. For me, as a fan, I'm good with all of them. I, I like all these fights. I like Francis versus Derek Lewis. I like Jones versus Ngannou. Heck, I even like Derek Lewis versus Jones. If that were to weirdly happen out of all this. Very exciting stuff happening in the heavyweight division right now. And also, did you guys hear about Robert Whitaker? So supposedly he tore the ligaments in his hand before fighting Kelvin Gastelum. How crazy is this? How good is Robert Whitaker, man? Like, you're telling me Whitaker was not at his best when he fought Kelvin Gastelum. He had an injured hand fighting Kelvin, and he looked that good doing it? He's better than we thought. Robert Whitaker's a savage, man. When's the last time we saw this guy fight 100%? Like, if he comes into the Adesanya fight with no injuries, man, I'm starting to feel pretty worried for Adesanya at this point because the Tory ligaments don't just affect your punching ability. It affects your wrestling. It affects your grip, your hand trapping, all that stuff. And Whitaker was able to display his skills, punching, takedowns, gripping, clinches, all that stuff with torn ligaments in his hand. Crazy, man. But let's get right to the questions here. We're going to start with the most like comments because there's a lot of questions. This is actually the most questions I've ever had for the podcast. And we're going to start with Simon Belmont. 
What kind of drugs was Oscar De La Hoya on during the Triller Circus? The way he was acting? Man, all I know is they weren't cheap. And then we go to Dre Johnson. Hypothetically, if Dana offered you to fight against CM Punk, do you think you could win? Then Prime Rashad Evans versus the current top 10 middleweights. I always felt like he'd do better at middleweight. And your top 3 favorite movies. Best MMA channel on YouTube. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, man. So, hypothetically, if I were to fight CM Punk, would I win? Yes. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to say objectively, try to take bias out as much as possible. It's very hard not to be biased when you're thinking about yourself, especially when you are getting in shape and training and think about being competitive in the sport. Yes, I honestly think it would be very easy. For people that don't know, I've been training for a long time, a lot longer than CM Punk has, and I'm fairly athletic, and I'm much younger than he is. And I haven't just been training in martial arts recently as an adult. I've been training at this since I was little. So I've developed the reflexes and the instincts and pretty much the muscle from those martial arts that's going to be very hard to develop when you're an adult. So yes, uh, I think so very easily. Prime Rashad versus current top 10. I don't think he does well. I don't have to go through the whole thing because I honestly think he loses to most of them. It's an entirely different era. And even during Rashad's era, he was really good. He was pretty one dimensional. Most of the guys in the middleweight division today are better at what he did best in his era. Maybe besides a double leg takedown, he had a very explosive blast double, but everything else from the overhands to the evasiveness to the footwork to the speed, he's completely outgunned in middleweight today. And my top three favorite movies, I don't know about you guys, but I'm much more into the superhero movies as well as horror movies. I know they're completely opposite on the scale, but those are like the only movies I really like to watch. So obviously I love the Endgame. I think I like Infinity War more than Endgame, to be honest. That was a good movie. Okay, even though this is not one of those genres, I did love Scarface. Objectively, I don't think it was a great movie, but it was a movie that I always watched. And maybe The Conjuring. I like The Conjuring. I think with a Gormor and Klar. If the following fighters were to change gyms, which gym do you think each fighter will make the most improvements at? We'll start with John Jones. I honestly think Jones would do amazing at Trevor Whitman's gym because he has the wrestling down, he has the jiu-jitsu down, he's a good kicker, but his boxing skills are lacking a bit and Trevor Whitman is an amazing boxing coach. Look what he did with Rose's hands. Look what he did with Justin Gaethje's hands. And not just that, the footwork. Jones doesn't move that much. So actually hit the biggest holes in his game footwork and boxing would be covered if he trained with Trevor Whitman. And then who would Conor McGregor benefit the most with? Conor's a weird case because from the people around him, the trainers themselves even say it, Conor's kind of his own head coach. Even though he has a head coach, he's kind of the one that knows more than everybody else and they kind of just listen to him. Even John Cavanaugh said, I mean, John Cavanaugh said that Conor is the, is the real coach in there. So with his mentality, I honestly don't think he would make improvements with another coach because ultimately the coach would be the same. It would be him. Then Nate Diaz. I think Nate would do great with uh, Mark Henry. Working that boxing more, working the jiu-jitsu with guys like Frankie Edgar over there. The pace and all that stuff. It just blends so well with Nate Diaz's style. And maybe they can add a little bit more power to his punches. Change the form up just a little bit than some of the slap boxing that he goes out there with. Mark Henry would 100% try to take that out of Nate Diaz's game. And put more meaningful power and impact behind those punches. Paulo Costa. Paulo Costa would need to go to Trevor Whitman. He needs to fix those hands more. He needs to refine his striking. He needs to be patient and use that movement more. He's a bit too wild. And that cannot be a thing when he fights guys like Adesanya or Robert Whitaker. His technique needs to be fine-tuned. And I don't think anybody can do that better than Trevor Whitman. Tony Ferguson. So Tony actually found a, a new coach. We'll see how that goes. But I honestly think that Faraz Sahabi would do a very good job with Tony Ferguson. I also think Mark Henry would do a very good job with him. The thing going against the Faraz Sahabi route is Tony's not that methodical in the cage. He's not that cerebral, although he does come out there with game plans. I think he needs a more aggressive gym to train at. Train with AKA would do great for Tony Ferguson because all those guys have that style. Even though he's not much of a wrestler, 
AKA would bring that wrestling out of him. So actually, I'll go with AKA. If he trains with guys like Daniel Cormier and Javier Mendez and all those guys over there, even train with Habib, who seems to be a coach these days. How ironic is that, that Tony Ferguson would make great improvements training with Habib Nurmagomedov. He would never do it, though. His pride wouldn't let him. And Ronda Rousey, when she was active. I mean, she was a gold mine. Any coach would have done great with her. But she went to the coach with the least skill set. Only boxing. And that did her in. I honestly think Matt Hume would have been one of the best. I think uh, AKA would have done great with her. With the pressure. Probably implement more wrestling. And work on her kickboxing more. AKA is a really good gym for her. So i probably say them or Matt Hume. The cerebral mindset. And then we go to Time Fire. How does it feel to finally have the curse lifted? Oh man, Robert Whitaker did it for me. It actually was not UFC 261. It was Robert Whitaker who did it. Or should I say, it was a sacrifice of Ben Askren. Ben Askren needed to be sacrificed in order to lift the curse. Because in that same night, like 20 minutes after Askren got knocked out, Robert Whitaker put on a dominant performance. Then Kamaru Usman put on a dominant performance. It seems like we're back, guys. But honestly, I kind of like having control of the main event. That curse was really strong. Every time I picked the main event winner, the opposite would happen. And in a sense, I was kind of controlling what was happening. And then with a TJ Dillashaw. Based on their last performances, how do you see a future fight between Nunez and Shevchenko going? Such a good fight. I don't know why Dana doesn't want to do it. They're both so dominant. Nunez is probably going to retire soon. There's nothing left for her after beating uh, Julian. I mean, even before Juliana Pena, there's nothing left for her. But it seems like Nunez has, I don't want to say less in her skill in the fights, but it seems like Nunez has tapped into more of her brutal forward pressure power punching style than her elusive technical style that she showed before like even against Jermaine Duranemi and, and Shevchenko in the first two fights the reason why I think that is is because she's competing against fighters who are less skilled so she knows she can walk right through them or try new things against them specifically like when she fought Felicia Spencer or when she fought Megan Anderson and frankly even when she fought Holly Holm now the difference is when she fights someone like Jermaine Duranemi and Valentina Shevchenko the high level caliber of fighter those are the fights you see the best out of Nunez I don't think she needs to be as technical against these girls that she's fighting right now. So it probably looks that way because of that. I hope it's not because she's getting overconfident. I don't see that in her personality. But she would have to be technical against Shevchenko. Because she's not going to beat her on the scorecards doing what she was doing against Chris Cyborg and Felicia Spencer, Holly Holm, etc. And with Valentina Shevchenko, I honestly see more improvements in her game than I do for Nunez. Which is actually surprising because Shevchenko is honestly not fighting high-level competition as well. I mean, besides you wanting on Jacek and maybe just Gondraj, she's still performing with all of her skills. She's still fighting at 100% where it seems like Nunez is not. It seems like Nunez is trying things in a fight or lessening her effort in a fight enough where she could just run you over with her power. I mean, heck, look at Shevchenko. She was mad. She seemed to be upset that people thought that she had a hole in her game. That's a different mentality, man. That's, a, that's an assassin-like mindset. She's mad people think that anybody can beat her. And that's enough to motivate her to prove a point to everybody. She wants to be perfect. I think there's a little bit of a difference with Shevchenko's and Nunez's mindset in their fights right now. Which I think would give an advantage to Valentina Shevchenko in the third fight. Especially coming off those losses. Those are hard fights for Nunez. But Shevchenko seems to be more motivated for the third fight than Nunez is. And ultimately still today. At this point, I see more people think that Shevchenko beat Nunez than I see people think Nunez beat Shevchenko. And here's the thing going into those fights. Especially the rematch. Shevchenko only had a problem with Nunez's reach and her physical attributes, not really her skills and techniques. She had a hard time with the distance because Nunez has probably the best distance management in women's MMA. She's very hard to hit and when she gets in on you, she gets out immediately with her long punches. So Shevchenko as a counterpuncher had a hard time countering her. Nunez will come in with a jab or the 1-2, Shevchenko will look to counter with the right hook, 
but Nunez is out of range completely. And that just made it a very difficult fight for Shevchenko to do what she usually does against opponents. And that's Counter-Strike. She's one of the best Counter-Strikers in the game. And when it got in the clinch in the rematch, you saw Nunez able to use her physicality and her strength to get Shevchenko to the ground. But you've seen in the first fight that Shevchenko is able to do the same against Nunez, but use her technique and her skills in there to trip out Nunez and pretty much control on top easily. So no matter what, I do think it is a close contest. And because I do see it going to the scorecards again and going either way, my gut feeling is for the third fight that Shevchenko is going to win in the scorecards very slightly. It's going to be like a split decision. Shevchenko wins three rounds out of the five. Like the third round is going to be controversial or something. And Shevchenko becomes the bantamweight champion. When I think about the fight technically, I think Nunez should have enough to win on the scorecards again. And she always has the ability to knock out Shevchenko. So because of the damaging factor, I logically think that Nunez is going to win on the scorecards. And then we've got an Uncle Chill fan. Number one is Usman Nadi. Seems like he has every single attribute. Huge for the division. High pace and volume. Tons of muscle and power. And also doesn't fatigue. Big fan of your work. Thank you so much, man. Kamar Usman is like a scientist's worst nightmare. Because they can't figure the guy out. They test him and he doesn't test positive. But he shows all signs of being Natty. He shows all signs of being on all the supplements that the world has to offer. The guy has a granite chin, he doesn't get tired, he has tremendous power, he's extremely strong, he looks like a middleweight, the guy had puberty again, the guy has acne and stuff, he can keep up a high pace with someone like Colby Covington of all people, how is that possible? Honestly, the only other fighter I've ever seen who has never tested positive and able to be powerful, strong, and have crazy cardio, go at a high pace, is Jessica Andrade. That's the only fighter I've seen. So fighters like Andraj and Usman, I don't understand where this is coming from. I guess at this point it has to be genetics. I mean, can you say he's on something? There's a lot of signs that he is, but he doesn't fail a drug test at the end of the day. The ultimate test is the drug test, and he never failed it. He's been tested a lot, and he never failed it. As some of you guys replied here, for instance, why did they reschedule the Burns fight? What was the reason? Nobody knows. Those are the signs, like there's suspicious signs of the guy, but then he just never fails. I don't know if he knows a way around this. I don't know if he has connections with USADA and he's like the first guy to know his way around it. So I'll say he's not Natty because I have no hard evidence that he does anything, but he is the most suspicious guy in the entire UFC, 100%. Even more suspicious than Yoel Romero. And that's saying something because at least Romero gasses out and cannot go at a fast pace. And then we go to Junior. Number one, is the UFC a monopoly? No, they are not a monopoly. There are other organizations that provide the same kind of product that the UFC does, but people just don't like it as much. They've bought other organizations, but that doesn't make them a monopoly because there are other organizations like Bellator is a big one. One championship is actually huge over there. Ryzen's out there. PFL's out there. Number two, how bad is fighter pay in the UFC when you consider Ben Askren made 500000 a show and not including sponsors. He probably made more money than most champions and 95% of the roster in the UFC. It's pretty bad. It's a different circumstance with the UFC because they have a lot of fighters under one banner, so they got to pay them all. But at the same time, because they have so many fighters under one banner, they are making a lot more money because of that. When you have Ben Askren making $500,000, which is more than he's ever made in the UFC fight, and what he said, more than the combined earnings of all of his Bellator and one championship fights put together, then there's something going on. I mean, fighters should get paid more. They're going to need a combined effort in order to do that. They can't do it themselves. They actually need each other in order to get higher pay from the organization. When you have professional UFC fighters making 20 and 20, 
That's crazy. They're the best fighters in the world. There should be no fighter making that low of money. So for an example, let's look at the last pay-per-view card and see what the fighters made. So yeah, Kamaru Usman, for an example, made 750000 to show. They actually show his uh, pay-per-view bonus, which is $640,000. made 60000 off sponsorship and 50000 for the performance of the night bonus. So he made $1.5 million. That's actually crazy. He made more than double off the pay-per-view than Jorge Masvidal did. But even still, I don't think he made enough off of it. It did 700,000 pay-per-view buys. He only made 640,000 off that? I mean, you're talking about over $40 million straight off pay-per-view. And Usman only made $640,000 out of that 40 plus million. And see, that's where it's messed up. Usman only made 1.6% of the pay-per-view. Logically, Usman should not have made less than $5 million total in this fight. And Jorge being the main attraction of the entire card, I don't know how he got paid less than Usman, honestly. I think that was a mistake on his manager, possibly. Because off a 700,000 pay-per-view card and Jorge as the star of the card, you can make an argument that he should not have made less than $10 million. Then we look at Shevchenko, $430,000. $300,000 to show, $100,000 to win. I think that's too low at her caliber. I think, in my opinion, she should have made no less than a million dollars in that fight. As a dominant champion who's been doing this for a long time, that's what I believe. Zhang Wei Li had $350,000 a show. In my opinion, she should have made no less than a million as well. Maybe with her being a bigger star than Shevchenko, we'll argue $1.5 million, $1.25 million. Chris Wyman made $400,000 a show. That's actually not bad at all. As a former champion, one of the greatest middleweights of all time, you can argue he should have made more than that. But that's not bad considering how his career is going right now. Anthony Smith with a $250,000 to show, $100,000 to win. That's actually not bad at all for him. Uriah Hall, $220,000 to show, $100,000 to win. That's really good for him. And then we go to Rose Namajunas. This is where it gets weird. Now, I don't know if that's on her manager or what it is, but Rose Namajunas should not be making $150,000 to show and $100,000 to win. She deserves way more than that. As a former champion, someone who's fighting for a championship on this card, and she's getting paid less than Uriah Hall, Anthony Smith, Chris Wyman, and Jimmy Crute, She's getting paid less than all of these fighters, yet being the former champion and also, in my opinion, a bigger star than all of them besides maybe Weidman. I don't see how Rose makes less than $350,000 a show. In my opinion, it feels my world. I think Rose, as a challenger to the title, she makes $500,000 for that fight. And Chris Wyman, I would say, probably would make also $500,000. Jimmy Coote, $200,000 a show. That's good for him. Everybody else I'm pretty much agree with, except actually Jessica Andrade. Jessica Andrade is a former champion, a contender in three different divisions, has fought for the belt in two of them. She is one of the greatest female fighters of all time. When you really look at her resume, I don't think she should have made less than $350,000 in that fight. If some people are arguing that that's too much money for the fighters, that doesn't even equal to half the generated revenue from the pay-per-view alone. Not talking about gate, not talking about merchandise or any of that other stuff. Just pay-per-view. It doesn't equal to half if you paid all the fighters that. But then again, you can't blame the organization. The only ones you could blame are the fighters at this point. Then we go to Theo Dixon, who has the best upper body takedowns in the UFC. Valentina Shevchenko doesn't really use a single or double leg, but her Greco-Roman judo seems really good. Yeah, her judo is insane. But upper body takedowns, Habib was one of the best. But right now, I like to say Islam Makhachev. I think Piotr Jan's up there, but I don't think we can go with anybody other than John Jones. John Jones is the best upper body takedown artist, I guess you want to call it, in the UFC right now. That's how he takes on most opponents. And he's taking down all different kinds of them, even someone like Daniel Cormier. And then we go to Joe Nero. How do you think Rose's championship reign will play out? This is a bit unpredictable because there are times Rose doesn't show up at her best. I think when Rose shows up, she's the best strawweight I've ever seen. And she might even be the best female fighter I've ever seen. I've been saying this for a while. When Rose is on, 
I don't think anybody beats her. But that's really up to her mental fortitude. She has all the skills. She's fast. She's powerful. She has great movement. She's super athletic. She's long for the division. She has almost all the physical qualities you want in a strawweight. But with her, it especially comes down to the mental side of the fight. Of course, there are technical things that certain fighters can beat her at. You know, for example, Mackenzie Dern. If she takes down Rose, you know, like, that's going to be trouble. But, you know, Tatiana Suarez, even. If Tatiana Suarez takes down Rose, Rose's BJJ can be very threatening. But that's a fighter who can at least challenge her in that area. And is the only fighter that could potentially dominate her on the ground with ground and pound and positional control. Yang Zhanan is no joke either. She has really good striking. She's very strong. She can pose interesting problems for Rose. So there are definitely fighters out there who can beat her. But if she shows up, I think she beats all of them. I think she beats... Mackenzie Dern never gets taken down, destroys her on the feet, moves away from her. There are times where rolls when she's backing up that she kind of loses her position in the octagon and gets too close to the cage where someone like Mackenzie Dern who's throwing wild punches and backing her up, shoots in that blast double, hangs onto her and drags her to the ground. That is a huge possibility because Dern is very strong. The thing going against Tatiana Suarez is... Yes, she's very pressuring, and yes, her wrestling is super dominant. She probably has the single or second most dominant aspect of the strawweight division, and that is her top control. Maybe behind Mackenzie Dern's BJJ. So even though Suarez has that pressure and has the wrestling and has the top control, she gasses out and her striking is nowhere near on the level to hang with Rose. Her pressure can sometimes be very one-dimensional, and Rose using her lateral movement can get away from Suarez. So I'll go and say, what I see from her title reign is... I see her defending the belt twice for sure. I think she beats the winner of Carlos Esparza versus Yan Zhaonan. And then I think she rematches either Joanna or Jean Wei Let's say that fight does get put together. She fights the winner of that one. And then as Tatiana Suarez and Mackenzie Dern come to the top of the division, that's where it's really going to test Rose. That's the next crop of fighters that she's never competed up against. Those are different level of athletes with different styles. And I think that's the point where Rose could lose. I can see her retiring with the belt. But if she doesn't, I will say she loses attempting her third title defense. And then we go to Ryan Bogart. How does the weasel think he would do in a fight against YouTube champion Jake Paul? Love the vids, man. Thank you so much. In a fight or a boxing match? Those are very different. So we'll say in a boxing match because that's the thing that Jake Paul does. He's a little bit bigger than me, but I've trained at this way longer than he has. Jake Paul has been training in boxing for three years. Strictly boxing. And he's starting in his early 20s. That doesn't mean he can't be a good boxer. He actually can be a good boxer if he takes it seriously and continues his training. But the thing is, I've been training in boxing ever since my early teens. And I trained in it over double the amount of time that Jake Paul has. Total years in straight boxing have been close to seven. Around seven years. And with all that training, you spend hundreds if not thousands of rounds. Hard sparring all different kinds of boxers at all different levels. And honestly, looking at it technically, Jake Paul makes a lot of mistakes. A lot of errors. Even fundamental errors. Even the right hand he threw at Ben Askren. Lifting his back foot off. Telegraphing it with a huge swing. Flaring his elbows out and pushing his body behind the punch. Those are pretty big errors, and huge telegraph swings, big power punches aren't generally the kind of shots that catch me. I do a pretty good job of getting away from those kind of punches, slipping on those punches and countering, especially from someone who, frankly, is pretty slow, like Jake Paul. But here's the thing, when you've been training for so long, especially as a kid, you see punches a lot easier. Your reflexes are a lot faster. And because of that, I honestly think the way I see Jake Paul fight out there, and I honestly think I would see all of his punches coming. The way he throws a jab up top, the way he swings his right hand, even his one-two. His one-two is not bad, honestly. But it's the way he plants himself when he throws that two. There's not a lot of fluidity with it. The punch itself, from the shoulder to the end of the fist, 
that form is quick, but everything else, it really isn't. There's a big tell, especially with his feet, before he throws it. And also, he has shown to gas out in the past. He hasn't been doing it that long, so of course he's not going to be able to develop that kind of cardio to go a long time. For instance, even myself, I don't have great cardio. I'm a fast twitch guy. I'm just born that way. But even I'm able to last 12 rounds pretty well. I've been doing it for so long. So yes, I think I do very well against Jake Paul. I know there's a few people who take this as the weasel's cocky, you know, all this stuff. It's Jake Paul. Okay, I'm not saying I'm going to beat Canelo. Okay, that's that's crazy. I'm talking about Jake Paul here, who most boxers on the planet, most amateur boxers on the planet, will absolutely smoke and leave him in the dust. Right? Almost everybody I've ever trained with would have beaten Jake Paul. So just to take that into consideration. I mean, even you guys. I bet there's a bunch of you guys who are listening right now that would also smoke Jake Paul. 100%. I know that for a fact. It's just sometimes the popularity and just seeing him knock out someone can create a false image in someone's head. They're going to flip 03. Have you ever thought about being a coach and you break down your fighter's opponents and make game plans for them? No, I never thought being a coach. I've actually had a few offers, but it's generally not something I'm that interested in. Unless it's something like really big moment or someone I really know, then I'll probably consider it. If I'm going to get paid for it, obviously I'm going to do it. If I make a big buck out of it, I'm going to do it. If it's not like that, if it's kind of just like, hey, I would like to have you in my camp and help me out with this and you could break down opponent for me. I'd like to see what you would see out of this fight. I don't know, man. I have a lot on my plate right now. It'd be very difficult, obviously, unless I'm getting paid a lot for it. Now, I wouldn't mind just making a breakdown and sending it to a fighter. I don't mind that at all. I would 100% do that. But flying out to be part of their camp, it's circumstantial. Then we go to the wild files. How do you see these fantasy matchups going? Usman versus Whitaker, I gotta go with Whitaker. He's like a kryptonite to Usman. Piotr Jan versus Volkanovski, I gotta go with Volkanovski. I think he's a little bit too strong. And even though he's short, he's an inch shorter than Jan. So yeah, he's much longer than him as well. I think Volkanovski would just be too physical. And I don't think Jan will get in on him to connect with those big punches that well. Because Volkanovski could be very cerebral out there. Volkanovski versus Chandler, gotta go with Chandler. He's a better wrestler. He's a better Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist. He has more power. He's bigger. It's going to be hard not to go with Chandler in that one. And also, it seems like Volkanovski's chin is getting to him. Getting dropped by Max Holloway the way he did multiple times in the first two rounds, that didn't look right. That looks like Volkanovski's taking a lot of damage, and he's just not, he's not able to keep that fresh chin, man. One shot from Chandler, and Volkanovski's going out. Sean O'Malley versus Jimmy Rivera. I honestly think it's a good fight. I would love to see this fight happen. Sean O'Malley seems to have fixed his cardio. Doesn't seem to get tired anymore. So he's a flashier fighter. He shows more out there. He's longer. He's taller. He's more powerful. Rivera can potentially shoot in on him. Test the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He can kick the legs and all that stuff. But Rivera sometimes is susceptible to head kicks. And O'Malley has some really sneaky head kicks. I go back and forth on this one. You know, I'm going to go with Sean O'Malley. Romanov versus Aspinall. This is a fight I think we're going to see in the future when these two guys hit the top ranks. But honestly, man, they're polar opposites. Striker versus wrestler here. I got to see more of Aspinall's takedown defense. As of what I see right now, I'm going to go with Tom Aspinall. He also has good takedowns himself and good Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So there's a bit more confidence for him. And then we go to Klefti. How do you think a fight between GSP at his absolute peak versus the Usman we saw against Masvidal would go. You know what's crazy to think about that fight? That GSP was a more well-rounded fighter. Way better Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Way better kicker. Better puncher in general. And can match the wrestling. Usman, I think, is stronger, right? I think we can all agree to that. He's more powerful. He can knock out GSP. He's not as good of a striker, though. And here's the thing going against him. GSP is not afraid of takedowns. Most of Usman's opponents are, besides maybe Colby Covington and Gilbert Burns. And those are the two guys that gave Usman the most trouble. When you're not afraid of his takedowns or you don't respect him that much, Usman becomes a lot easier of an opponent to deal with. GSP is going to be another one of those guys. He's not going to be worried at all about getting taken to the ground. So he's not going to give up those openings from takedown fakes. 
Usman reaching at his leg and all that stuff. If he reaches at his leg, GSP is going to head kick him or jab him in the face. He's not worried at all. So Usman is actually going to be the one that's going to mind his P's and Q's when it comes to the stand-up. Because he's going to have to mix things up very efficiently in order to get anywhere near GSP. I like to go with Usman because he is the next generation of fighter, right? He is the evolution of the welterweight division. But now the more I think about it, GSP is the only guy that can take him to the ground. And nobody even shoots takedowns on Usman. He has a 100% takedown defensive rate. But who has shot takedowns on him? Damian Maya. Damian Maya is not taking down Usman. Guys like Colby Covington haven't shot on him. Guys like Gilbert Burns haven't shot on him. Can the best wrestler in the sport take down Usman then? Because Usman takedown defense honestly has not been tested that much. The 100% takedown defensive rate is a bit inflated. And GSP is a guy who's taking on Johnny Hendricks and Josh Koscheck, who are amazing wrestlers. Very strong too. So logically thinking about the fight on a technical level, I think GSP could beat Usman. I think Usman's jab and right cross are not going to be that dangerous for GSP. I think GSP will see him from a mile away. They have pretty much the same reach and GSP will be able to slip on those or even shoot under them with the takedown. And that's actually going to trick up Usman more than anything else. Imagine now Usman has to worry about the takedowns. Think about that. Imagine Usman has to worry about takedowns, because he would, especially if he gets on his back at all in the fight. It would change up the fight so much, to the point where we see Usman in a position we've never seen him in before, where GSP's been through it all. GSP's been on his back, GSP's been dropped before, and made comeback victories. GSP's fought wrestlers, and boxers, and kickers, and Brazilian art. he's fought them all. He's been in every position in the book. Usman has not. Usman, besides against maybe Gilbert Burns, has never been in a compromised position in a fight. What happens when he is for the first time? He's on his back against a guy who has far superior jiu-jitsu. What does Usman do when he's on his back? Does he do what Justin Gaethje did? The wrestler instinct of getting on your base and standing up? GSP is going to take his back and get a choke in there. What does Usman do when he gets taken to the ground? We don't even know. And that is fascinating. So I'm actually going to go with GSP on that one. Then we'll go to Sean Zhu. What is currently your favorite division in the UFC? It's lightweight. That division is beyond stacked. And look who's in there. First of all, everybody's a finisher. Everybody either goes for a knockout or a submission. They usually put on technical wars if they don't get that finish. You have several former champions in that division. It's the highest level division in the entire UFC. Like, think about it. You got Dustin Poirier, former champion. You got Justin Gagey, former champion. You got Michael Chandler, former Bellator champion. You have Tony Ferguson, former champion. You got Conor McGregor, former champion. RDA, former champion. That's six fighters who are former champions. That's almost the entire top seven of the division. And look at all the guys, man. Poirier finishes. Justin Gaethje is a knockout artist. Charles Alvaro with the submissions. Michael Chandler, one of the hardest punchers pound for pound. Tony Ferguson, absolute savage, always going for the finish. Conor McGregor, knockout artist. RDA, not so much, but he's very technical. Dan Hooker, TKO artist. But Neil Dariush, all-around finishing ability. Paul Felder hasn't been much of a knockout artist lately, but he definitely has the power to do so. Islam Makashev, submission threat, domination. Diego Ferreira, submission threat. Kevin Lee, submission threat. Gregor Gillespie, TKOs. Donald Cerrone finishes all around. Pretty much the entire top 15 besides like two fighters have an overwhelming ability to finish the opponent. And they're all super high level. How can the lightweight division not be your favorite? There is no other division that's like it. Then we go to Gilad Abdi. Hey Weasel, call me crazy, but I think Hamza is Usman's nightmare matchup in the future. If Hamza reaches his full potential, of course. I mean, think about it. He has a similar reach to Usman. Unlike most of Usman's opponents, he has good KO power. And he actually could even out-wrestle Usman. Wouldn't be even shocked if he submits Usman. And is also stronger than him, or at least can easily match him in strength. It's like Hamza was made to beat Usman. What do you think of this matchup if Usman reaches his full potential? Keep the great content up, bro. Thank you so much, man. So, maybe, perhaps, if he has the wrestling to take down Usman, then... 
then things get very interesting because he is the better grappler, at least on the ground. His submission ability is there. His BJJ is going to be there. His judo skills are going to be there. But it's just so hard to know right now. On paper, I see what you're saying. A guy who has a takedown threat against Usman, who can hurt him with his hands, seems to be faster, and can actually put the pressure on Usman, making him fight on the back foot. But here's the thing, how is Hamza's chin? How is his cardio? What happens if Usman shoots on him? There's so many questions about Hamza, it's nearly impossible to really know at this time. I mean, Hamza's only had, what, three, four fights in the UFC right now? It's way too early to really call if Hamza is Usman's nightmare matchup. On paper, I see what you're saying, but there's just so many unknowns that can throw this out the window. If it turns out Hamza has no chin, or the fact that he can't go five rounds, he has no chance of being Usman. Then we go to another question by Klefti. Do you think Whitaker has the tools to beat Adesanya this time? Yes, he does. But I don't necessarily favor him to win. It's a bit different for Whitaker to fight guys so long, especially counterpunchers of that kind of reach. Maybe it just makes Whitaker want to blitz in with heavy punches, and that ultimately exposes himself again in the rematch. But he doesn't have to go that route. Whitaker has skills that doesn't make it necessary for him to lunge in with these giant overhands in order to catch the longer fighter. He has the takedowns. He has a side kick to the knee. He has leg kicks in general. He has the stutter steps. He has a different kind of footwork. He has so many ways to get in on Izzy rather than wing punches at him. I don't know if Whitaker can get him to the ground. I don't think he will. But at least the takedown threat could open up combinations with his hands. He fake slow comes up with the uppercut. Fake slow goes for the overhand right. Fake slow goes to the body. There's so many things he could do with faking takedowns or even getting that single leg and rising up to the clinch so he gets into his distance when they separate. He's going to have to watch out from the elbow or the punch off of the exit. But by doing so, he's ultimately going to get Izzy closer to the cage, keep the pressure on him a little bit more. Even though Whitaker doesn't do it that much, he likes to keep the fight in the center of the cage most of the time. There are also the kicks though. The head kicks, the body kicks, the leg kicks. Whitaker needs to be a lot more patient in this fight, but not so patient where he's just staying far away from Izzy, ultimately being at a disadvantage when it comes to range. At that same time, he needs to be active enough to trick Izzy here and there. He doesn't want Izzy to control the pace of the fight. So in a sense, we all know Adesanya doesn't like to lead a fight. So therefore, Whitaker is going to have to be patient. But in the meantime, he does want to stay away and get kicked at or punched at from a distance and ultimately lose on the scorecards. So with constant fainting, going for the takedowns, rising up to the clinch, light kicks from a distance, a lot of stutter steps to draw Adesanya's counter punches out or counter kicks out so he can counter those himself. That's the path to victory for Whitaker in my opinion. It would be a very difficult fight for Whitaker, but it is absolutely doable. Then we go to Anthony Harwood. Do you think we'll ever see a celebrity MMA match on the skill as the YouTube boxing events but for MMA? I don't think so. It ultimately would be up to Dana and the UFC to do that because let's say they have a celebrity fight in Bellator or something. Like, I don't think many people are going to care. It's going to have to be under the UFC in order to be successful or they make their own organization. Something like another thriller event, but for MMA. That, I think, is the only other way that can happen. I don't think the UFC is going to allow it under their banner unless it's someone like a Tyson Fury, like a real boxer or a real combat athlete that crosses over into the UFC and tries their hand at it. Kind of how James Tony did it. But I don't think we'll see a CM Punk experiment ever happen again. And ultimately, Dana knows the kind of damage that these celebrity fights would have on the sport if he were to let them happen. Then we'll go to Scorpion 12. If you take two noobs on the street and give one of them six weeks of pure striking training and the other guy six weeks of pure grappling training, which guy is more likely to win? Win an MMA fight or just a fight in general? 
in a general fight, I'll go with the grappler. Strikers who don't understand grappling, don't have an exit plan, or anything to fall back to when they see a takedown coming at them. Grapplers do if they see strikes coming at them. What is a grappler going to do when they're getting punched at or kicked at? They're going to go for a takedown. What is a striker going to do when a takedown comes after them? Generally, you don't see them do anything, actually. They kind of just get frozen in space, or they throw some big winging punch, and 90% of the time, they miss and get taken to the ground. So I'm going to go with the pure grappler. Then we're going to talk Maeda. If you were Jake Paul's manager, who would you want him to fight next? And who would be his closest fight with a well-known UFC fighter? I would put him up against Dylan Dennis because it's an easy fight for him. And ultimately, it builds on his highlight. It's a guy with a little bit of a name who's connected to Conor McGregor. Dylan Dennis is pretty big on social media as well. And another knockout victory for Jake Paul is only going to further his star power. His closest fight, though, might be... I heard him and Mike Perry had a good sparring session. That might be pretty close. I can see Tyron Woodley being pretty close with him. But ultimately, I'll stick with Mike Perry. Mike Perry's a bit wild. He's smaller than Jake Paul. He's a lesser reach. He's not as athletic. He's not very technical with his hands either. But his power, ferocity, his chin and durability and his cardio ultimately can make it a bit competitive for Jake Paul. And that is the end of the podcast, guys. Amazing questions, guys. And I'll see you in the next video.